Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. My name is Elizabeth Weiss, and I am the audiovisual specialist here at Missouri Farm Bureau, and you're about to hear a special episode of our podcast. The 2020 Commodity Conference was held completely virtually over Zoom this year, and you're about to hear a recorded session from the Commodity Conference. If you're interested in watching the full video of the Zoom call of this session or seeing the slides from the presenter, you can find all that information on mofb.org slash events slash commodity. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. I'm Blake Hurst, president of Missouri Farm Bureau. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, on this, uh, this morning's sessions. Uh, we uh, had hoped to be in person. That wasn't possible, but uh, virtual seems to be a a good substitute. We did four sessions yesterday. We have four this morning. Uh, everything so far, uh, as far as the technology is gone, has worked out just fine. I would remind you that when uh, uh, this session is over, you'll have to disconnect and then reconnect uh, for the nine o'clock session. That's just the way Zoom works. Uh, if you're on Facebook Live, obviously, we'll re restart it at 9 a.m. Um, people are, are, as I said, participating three different ways, Zoom, conference call, or Facebook Live. Uh, we're also recording each session. They'll be available on the web at mofb.org forward slash event forward slash commodity. Uh, if you're watching by Zoom, you can ask a question at any time uh, by typing it, uh, by clicking on the uh, question and answer tab and typing in the question. If you're calling in by telephone, uh, just press star nine and uh, Spencer is our tech guru this morning and she'll get to you at the end of the presentation and we'll get your question up. If you do ask a question on the phone, we'd ask that you uh, let us know your name and county. Uh, and also on Facebook, you have the ability to ask questions or make comments as all, and we're monitoring those as we go through it. Uh, we'll do some questions after uh, Seth's uh, presentation. So we're looking forward uh, both to his presentation and uh, the question and answer period afterwards. The uh, session this morning is titled Livestock and Grain Outlook. Our presenter is Dr. Seth Meyer, who's Associate Director at FAPRI at the University of Missouri. He's a research professor and Associate Director again at FAPRI. Uh, FAPRI, of course, as we all know, uh, is a very well known throughout the nation uh, for its agriculture policy and market analysis. And uh, often uh, Seth is called on to testify for Congress uh, representing FAPRI with their latest projections. He was most recently the head of the World Agriculture Outlook Board, the agency at USDA charged with bringing together USDA resources and assessment of crops around the world. Uh, we, uh, Seth, has recently returned to Missouri and we are very, very fortunate to have him here. Uh, he's been great to work with, uh, truly a, a tremendous resource uh, for agriculture in the state of Missouri. And with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Seth Meyer. All right, thank you very much, Blake. And I'm gonna share my PowerPoint slides here. And, uh, and, and I, we, you and I were talking about um, a little story here that I think really kind of does describe uh, this year so far, which is they send us all home from the university to avoid getting COVID. And I got a Rocky Mountain spotted fever from a tick in the yard. So, you know, just when you think you might be safe or you know what's going on, it's been a year that, that um, just a lot of unusual things going on. So I want to talk to you about several different things. And I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to give you concrete ideas on where markets are heading. But let's talk about all the bits and pieces that are contributing to where we're going. 
So, I, I, you know, this, is, this, this Billy Mays guy is the guy on TV late at night that every time you think the, the, the deal's done, he says, but wait, there's more. And, and as we were approaching this year very early on, you know, I, I think that I was pretty confident that we probably weren't going to get as much rain and wetness throughout the United States as we did last year. So that meant supplies would be bigger. And then I said, almost certainly 2020 has got to have less uncertainty than 2019 did with all the trade friction and planting issues. Well, I think so far, folks, could you could legitimately argue that's been wrong. Um, expectations of a rebound in supplies, that's absolutely true. We'll talk more about yields because you know, there are some pretty big numbers floating around. And I think while there is all this discussion of COVID and trade friction for, for crops in particular, it's being also all of that overshadowed by the thoughts that maybe we're going to get some record yields for both corn and soybeans. You know, when we started the year and, and I was thinking maybe less uncertainty, phase one was signed January 15. Let's check in and talk about where we are with respect to that. But then COVID impacts spread from China to the U.S. We had economy-wide shutdown, uh, perhaps affecting the supply chain for livestock, but also affecting demand on the crop side. We'll talk a bit about that. Some demand shifts, some declines. You know, we, 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 we've got um, uh, both short-run and long-run economic impacts from some of these shutdowns, supply chain disruptions we talked about. Phase one progress has been lagging. We'll, we'll, we'll jump back into that. We've had a sharp economic contraction, but the big question will be, as far as the macro economy goes, what's the pace of rebound? Now we've seen some folks go back into shutdown. Does this hold it off longer? What do we see in the fall? So, of course, there are some, I, I don't want to necessarily call these positives because I don't think they are, they're positives per se, but some offsets. So, you know, it, we did see some acreage supply response um, you know, we had farmers at least talking about intentions for 97 million acres of corn uh, and a fair amount of beans, and they pulled back from that a little bit. That also, you know, shows that at least to some extent, some of that's prevent plant for comparing years, say, to 2018, not 19, 2018 to this year, uh, this year maybe a bit more prevent plant. But also, you know, prices having an effect, maybe some uh, marginal acres going out. Outstanding sales looking better for corn and soybeans. We'll talk about that. I'll remind you of a couple things with regard to phase one. Uh, I don't want to overinterpret it because I do think it's, it tends to be a guide, not a, 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 an absolute. Meat trade's been a positive, but it's needed to be a positive. We'll talk more about that. And even if we don't make the phase one targets per se exactly, outstanding sales, some other things are setting themselves up to be hopefully at least a return to trade on the level of pre-friction uh, 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 pre-friction values. And government payments, again, this, I don't necessarily call this a positive, maybe a, a non-negative, that government payments offsetting some of those losses. I think everybody would rather have their money come from the market. Uh, uh, government payments, not a bad thing, but let's not call about, let's not call the need for those a positive per se. So uh, the first thing I also want to talk about, I mean, another thing I want to talk about too is what has been the, what's an analog to, to COVID-19? Because it runs through all of these things we'll talk about a little bit today. And I've been generally described it as in the short run, it's a generous mix of that Holcomb, Kansas slaughter plant fire 
on a much bigger scale. So you have supply chain disruptions. And then the second shoe to drop is maybe something like the Great Recession, where you have a big economic slowdown, and that is what lingers even after slaughter gets back on track, which it, which it looks like it has. But I think we've also seen really disparate impacts when you start thinking about uh, livestock and slaughter capacity, corn and ethanol demand from driving, and wheat and wheat flour demand, and, and rice. I mean, these things, it's really the short run impacts have varied by commodity. And then with even within those commodities, you've seen uh, mixes of what, pro what part of that product's been demanded shift. So some of the analysis I'll show you it, it relies on some of these macroeconomic forecasts. I'm not showing them so much for that reason, but kind of to tell you what some folks were forecasting. Now, this is done in May, which isn't that long ago from IHS market, from a global economic uh, perspective, GDP growth. But in the current environment, May seems like a long time ago. And, and this would have been probably a bit before the second wave. So, so it isn't quite clear how deep the uh, impact will be or the speed of recovery. But I think a lot of folks expecting a sharp contraction and then a rebound. And you know, you heard some folks talk about a, you, know, you heard in the news, a 32% GDP contraction. Well, that was taking a quarterly and expanding it over the whole year, okay? And I don't think, I don't think anybody expects that contraction that we saw early on to continue and, and that there will be a rebound. So again, uh, I think that this is probably a reasonable look at what they might say again today but uh, a sharp contraction and then a rebound. But again, this is GDP growth rate. So a stronger than average GDP growth rate does not get you back to where you would have been otherwise for a couple of years. So that's where I'm talking about, you know, the great recession, perhaps we have some longer lasting, some short run effects on the supply side, I mean, on, on the supply chains and then longer running demand impacts. The other thing that's been going on that's probably providing us some headwind here is that despite the problems we think we have here in this country, dollar is seen as a safe haven that drives up the dollar value of the dollar and makes us somewhat less competitive when it comes to trade in some agricultural commodities. Dollar strength. Now that's combined with the fact that some places like Argentina and Brazil have both people both find those currencies insecure, but there are other internal problems there as well too. So it's not just COVID response, it's also the response of people to those countries' currencies. But dollar strength, not necessarily a great thing for us, but it's come down a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, what I'm gonna do is let's talk a little bit about food, let's kind of run it through cattle, and then let's run it through hogs, let's go through crops, and then we'll talk about some, some policy details and some other things. So, you know, what we've seen is a sharp contraction in different types of tra traffic patterns related to food purchases, people not going to sit down restaurants, a sharp contraction there, but folks going to supermarkets, folks buying certain products, changing their product mixes, um, and, and we haven't seen that recovery. We started to see a recovery in this and that recovery slowed a little bit in the last several weeks as we've had some states see increases in COVID numbers. So one of the things that will not come as a surprise to any of you, 
uh, but I, I was pretty amazed by is that reporters from uh, uh, from large newspapers would call me and could not understand how er, this is early on in the process could not understand how if they couldn't find ground beef in the grocery store cattle farmers weren't making a whole bunch of money how is that possible so of course you all know what this is which is you know we saw that jump in wholesale and retail more to the point, wholesale beef prices. Some of those groceries trying to keep a bit of a line on it into the store instead of saying raising prices and causing that to ration demand and really make the consumers angry. Instead, I'm sure, I don't know if you all saw it here, but I did see it elsewhere. You can have one package of ground beef, all right? And that's when I started to get these calls that said, you know, clearly these guys gotta be making a lot of money. And, uh, you know, we saw something somewhat similar in retail pork, and now we're getting back down to a situation where uh, we're, we're in a more normal period as slaughter capacity has returned. Folks have stopped buying a whole bunch of meat in advance, and uh, the system is somewhat returning to normal or, or closer to normal with respect to the supply chain. So here you can also see, uh, plant capacity for both beef and pork and daily cattle and hog slaughter numbers, a sharp contraction. This is what was causing the spread between animal and wholesale meat prices. I'm sure you guys know this, but we've seen that largely return to normal. And we've seen, you know, folks hunting around early, when we were at that very severe dip, you were hearing stories about euthanization of hogs and chickens, and folks were throwing around some really big numbers. I think there were some adjust other adjustments made. I think we will we'll have for the moment avoided some of that. But of course, with this new uh, resurgence of COVID and concern that we might see a expansion in the fall, you know, we don't, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say we're, we're out of the woods and of course, you all at Farm Bureau, and I was, I was on a, a meeting with John Newton, and of course Farm Bureau looking forward to the fall because large numbers of hogs need to make it through the system. We'll talk about large hog numbers in quarters three and quarters four. It was already gonna stress the slaughter capacity even prior to the COVID outbreaks, so the engine needs to be firing on all cylinders in order to absorb those hogs through the system and not put prices, push prices down. I think this, in this case, everybody's well aware of that. Okay, so as you can see, you know, the price projections for both swine and cattle have been adjusted downward pretty sharply since WASDE started doing this. In, and that's May of 2019. And you can really see after the first of the year, they started making downward adjustments. Supplies were big. You started having COVID impacts. You started worrying about uh, whether you'd have the slaughter capacity, which was going to be tight in swine already, whether you'd have the capacity to make that all happen. And then you've also seen some volatility uh, in the last several months with respect to some of these numbers. And I think that that's very much because they don't know for sure how the rest of the year is gonna, gonna turn out. And we saw this too, when you, when you looked early on here in May, in April and May, you could see a big spread between nearby futures prices and nearby cash prices for cattle and swine. 
And it isn't because it was a lack of convergence. It was because the spot price was today and the futures price might be in two weeks. And at that time, two weeks seemed like forever in understanding how slaughter was going to go. So one of the responses, obviously, in cattle has been, you know, the, the weights didn't decline seasonally as things backed up. That's one of the ways, obviously, that you could back up the animals a little bit to, to offset that decline in slaughter capacity. And this has also been a, one of the offsets also when it comes to production in the cattle sector is those animals not declining seasonally with weight and uh, just holding steady there, uh, providing a little bit of an offset on production even as slaughter numbers fell. So when you look at this, this is both uh, um, USDA's latest forecast and also what we said in June and feeling pretty good about, this is my colleagues, Scott Brown and Daniel Madison's uh, numbers, feeling pretty good about their June number because USDA was swinging around quite a bit. Um, maybe some signs, despite the fact here that you've got an increase in beef production in 2021, um, that maybe you're tempering growth in supply there a little bit. Uh, that's, that's at least an opportunity. Exports have been de are, are okay and expected to be pretty decent, better on the hog side. And some uh, at least rebound in price in 2021, as long as we don't see, as long as we do see perhaps some of that turn beginning in the herd. Now, at the same time, U.S. hog breeding inventory as well, too. Some of what we've seen is we've seen for several years an expansion in that herd, a little bit of a decline in the, in the, in the breeding herd inventory here of late. But when you look at quarterly hog, the, the quarterly hog reports, no indication that producers are letting their feet off the gas through quarters three and four of 2020. And again, maybe some signal, maybe they'll let off the gas uh, and supplies will ease into the new year. But this again, I think, I think that um, uh, we'll all keep our fingers crossed and hope there's no disruption in the fall because that was always going to be, not always, it was going to be tricky in order to maintain a balance between numbers and slaughter capacity. Um, we saw the same thing here as well too as part of the, the the backlog ended up in a bit higher weights. We're starting to see that uh, there's still some backlog to deal with, uh, but we're starting to see those weights decline seasonally as well too. One of the things that folks have been trying to do as well too, and, and, and when at the height of euthanization stories, folks were talking about three plus million hogs already and maybe more than that, but as we've gone on, and these statistics change, right? They, they, they do a preliminary estimate and then they finalize it. So death loss has jumped, but it's more on the order of maybe a million pigs, a million and a half pigs, and slaughter capacity seems to be catching up. And now again, you know, this doesn't mean that we don't, couldn't potentially have a problem this fall, but I think that we have come in and this number is hard to pin down exactly in, in the way that the information that you have, but maybe something implied less than folks were throwing out earlier. Now let's talk a little bit about trade because trade, at least on the meat side, has been a good story. Show this one just because it's so dramatic, which is when we look about the projected decline in China's pork numbers 
that projected decline is larger than all of U.S. production. So their decline is bigger than our total production. And so imports here aren't offsetting much of that decline, but have been quite strong relative to what they would normally be. Now we are see some, seeing some signals of that turn in the Chinese market. I think some folks were quite pessimistic, probably including us, about how long it would take them to turn in that market. But when we get to soybeans, uh, I think it's really important to note what's going on in the soybean market because those soybeans probably aren't going into stocks in China. We'll talk more about that, but there are some indications of that market turning. And we've needed that export growth to kind of take up some of what has been that increase in production. We've had good growing demand in the United States for meat for the last many years. Uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a worry in terms of um, uh, macroeconomic effects and folks buying a little bit less or, or, or looking for uh, less uh, prime cuts. I know Scott wrote a story about prime rib and, and, and whether economic impacts, macro impacts would have an effect on that demand, you know, but, but export growth has been a positive. But we can see, you know, you've got weekly shipments to China have been elevated. I don't want to read too much into that decline, but I think that there are some signals that prices in China are softening. And if we look at things from the feed side, you might also say something is taking up that feed use, which is being produced into meat and uh, offsetting, if it's not pork, it's, be, it's offsetting some of the, the pork that was lost. So when we look at overall in terms of, of, of USDA's production estimates and our own production estimates, a big bump into 2020, those softer prices, including what we saw about some lower prices early on, but at least from USDA's estimate for 2020, part of that is also a lower number that they're running for Q4, the fourth quarter of this year as animals start to be pushed through the system. I think we'd be a little bit more optimistic about that than that. And USDA has been swinging that fourth quarter number around in terms of prices quite a bit. So that, those are some of the short kind of short run effects here too, but you know, this is the, the Federal Reserve takes some of our information and some other folks information and they put out a report recently, which I, I thought was really good. And I like this slide because it tells you kind of um, what, what, you know, what, what can you look at in terms of meat consumption? And if we go back and we talk about, okay, after we emerge from COVID impacts in general, what do things look like if, if the other foot that drop, other shoe that drops is something comparable to the Great Recession here. And you can see that, in fact, meat, U.S. per capita meat consumption has been strong the last several years, but it really isn't an adjustment back down from what we saw during the Great Recession. So all the recessions here are grayed out. It isn't really clear to me that there's a strong impact. Ag tends to fare better than other industries during recessions. But that last great recession did have an impact. So the question is, is um, do we have a sharp V recovery? And folks, while it does have a negative impact on overall GDP, folks feel like we're back on a track and this is one of the places they don't cut back, or does this linger and have an effect on overall meat consumption? So let's switch over to the crop supply, to the crop side. And one thing I wanna to talk to you about is, you know, 
generally crop supplies around the world are pretty good, pretty abundant around, around, the, uh, around the globe. We've had many, many years where supply has exceeded demand at a global level. Uh, supplies are pretty abundant. We knew that our own supplies were likely to rebound after last year's record large prevent plant. So I think that that was in the back of everyone's mind was a increase in supplies both here and supplies have been good around the world. Now, the other side of that is that we did see, you know, a, a decline in acreage from intentions to the June acreage final. And it was noticeable. I mean, you can't really compare anything to 2019. With that large amount of prevent plant, it's really difficult in my mind to compare anything to it. But let's look up here and compare it to 2018. We lost about seven and a half million acres. And, and at least part of that's based upon the fact that um, a little bit of it's prevent plant, but it's, that can't explain it all. Farmers clearly pulled back a little bit in, 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 in some acreage. You gotta, you gotta think that prices at least had some response. I also suspect folks prevent planted again in some locations, but there is some price respond in planted acreage that offered at least a little short run support in those markets. The other thing I'll tell you is, we're gonna talk about yields next, but this is a really interesting map for me. Headline of the Des Moines Register this morning, talking about that drought right there in West Central, Western Central Iowa. And yet, so, so take a look at this map. I want you to just to look across this and consider corn and soybeans. And then let's look at what the yields that USDA is estimating and what some other folks are throwing out about there, uh, throwing out there right at the moment. So here we got corn, you know, USDA was at 178.5. Uh, for beans, they were nearly 50 bushel an acre as their weather adjusted, normal weather adjusted trend yield. So that's just a simple, hey, if weather is normal, here's what we expect to get. Next week will be the first uh, estimate, which is not that simple weather adjusted trend from NAS. From NAS, and this is a bit different, they used to do corn and bean surveys based upon both field examination and talking to farmers. Now in August, they only talk to farmers. It is only survey based. So what you had here is some folks talking, maybe we will have yields above USDA's numbers. And I just put one number, one group's numbers out there, which is uh, StoneX. So formerly FC Stone, you know, they're talking about something a little over 182 bushels an acre. Now, now keep that drought monitor in mind as well too. They're talking about something a little over 182 bushel an acre for corn. And they have something nearly 55, it's over 54 bushel an acre beans. Um, now the market did respond to this and, you know, beans basically hit a life of contract low on harvest on, on that corn. You know, folks getting a bit more comfortable that that corn number may actually be bigger than USDA's numbers. Beans didn't have the same response and I'll argue two things. One, maybe nobody believes the uh, FC Stone number. And two, it's really crazy to try and predict well a soybean number this early. <coughs> it is incredibly difficult to do that with much accuracy, which is part of the reason that uh, NAS gave up going out into the fields and examining soybean fields instead of talking just to producers. 
So if we look at overall corn, so corn supply and demand estimates here, you see that 178.5. Um, again, it wouldn't surprise me to see that. No, it, it, you know, some folks are throwing out numbers higher than that. Uh, so you may be in a position to have some additional supplies. Maybe we'll do a little bit of additional exports as well too if the crop gets a little bit bigger. But you know, we're still talking the potential for, for a pretty big carryout. And I wonder what they will do in terms of that ethanol grind adjustment. Ethanol had been recovering quite well. I wonder somewhat what the second wave of lockdowns might do to motor fuel demand. We'll talk more about that. But again, any increase in supply is likely to push those ending stocks yet higher. And that's a pretty big ending stock number. You know, and just to, to put this out here, these aren't directly comparable, but what we were talking about in June as our longer uh, current, our near term and longer term um, uh, price projection forecast. And I'm putting December futures out here as well too. Not that these are directly comparable because you do have a basis effect. You've got uncertainty, many other things, but we are talking about um, the possibility of having, you know, of having low prices uh, there in the below 340 range under the assumptions that we were making. So this includes some COVID, it includes some measure uh, now, but this is also uh, pre-acreage adjustment. So there's a lot of moving parts here, just that I think if we redid this with the latest information, we might not have huge revisions to our price expectations after we incorporate everything that happened since late May. That, that's part of my point as well too. So, oh, I need to back up, uh, no. Okay, here we go. So again, you know, I think on the supply side, I think row crop producers, and I'm talking about corn and beans, those folks have mostly avoided big impacts on the supply side. But where you have seen impacts is the demand side. Ethanol production falling sharply, um, uh, as folks stop driving. Now this is a quirk of how the domestic policy works. We all think about uh, domestic biofuel policy and the RFS as being, hey, 15 billion gallons means 15 billion gallons. Well, what the EPA does is they take that number and they convert it into a percentage based upon expected driving. Within a year, that's what happens. So if folks drive a lot less than they expected, the demand for ethanol is gonna be a lot less too. So that's why you see this is consistent with the way the policy works and you have a reduction in domestic ethanol demand that'll be about exactly pegged to driving. So if we remain below, you know, 10% below expectations of driving for the rest of the year, ethanol demand is gonna be pegged, pegged right to that value. Now, it should all get reset when it comes to 2021, but there is, uh, from a policy perspective, uh, a lot going on in this space. I think even some, there's some uh, litigation, there's some, some hesitancy to put out new numbers with respect to the RFS because it'll make no one happy. Uh, uh, some group of constituencies will be upset about the answer no matter what. So I. I don't think, and this uncertainty quite honestly works against the ethanol industry. So again, as we talked about, the expectation uh, is that 
the way the policy works is you'd have a sharp contraction in ethanol demand simply because of a sharp drop in motor gasoline demand. But as you see that cut recovery, and if you have, as you get into the new policy year, you would see a rebound in ethanol. But I think again, from because this policy is set on an annual basis by EPA, we've got lots going on, including an election coming up. I can't really call what kind of rebound we might see in that. So I don't wanna to, to talk too much about this because again, uh, the, this is a complicated policy with lots of moving parts. I know you all understand this, but biofuel use in 2020 is gonna be dictated by driving. There's nothing that you're gonna to see to, to, to change that throughout the rest of 2020. 21 is gonna determine how EPA sets the total mandate. The problem will be is that if they think that driving is going to be less in 2021 than it was the last, say in 2019, if they try and hit 15 billion gallons, that implies a higher blend rate, which implies higher in prices, which is what gets some folks in the oil industry stirred up. The 2021 RVO is already way overdue. Um, there's a lot of discussion that I'm sure you all are aware of about small refinery exemptions. The, the oil folks are, we're told by the, the EPA was told by the 10th Circuit Court, you can't give people small refinery exemptions that didn't get them in previous years. So what did the oil companies do? They said, well, okay, we didn't ask for one in 18, but now we're gonna go back and ask for one in 18 or 17 or 16 or 15. And because they say there's nothing specifically in the rule that prohibits them from, from asking for an exemption from 2015, they're going to do it. So there's about 2 billion gallons worth of, of retroactive small refinery exemptions that have been asked for. Uh, this would instantly create a multi-year problem for the industry and probably hammer the ability of the industry to grow at all for the next several years, should the bulk of those be granted. Um, then there's, uh, to be quite honest with you, there's gonna be a lot of short run, long decision, run decisions that may take place after November 3rd. Uh, you know, are they kicking the can down the road till after, no, after the election to talk about those gap year SREs and new SREs? Um, if they do put out a prelim RVO for 2021, the final won't come out till after the election. And then there is a reset rule. And this reset rule is, is basically a philosophical roadmap for the RFS beyond 2022. As you know, the quantities of the RFS are not reported in the legislation after 2022, but that doesn't mean it ends. It continues. So there's a reset rule which went to went through the process and was yanked by EPA that is basically the philosophy of the program going forward. So a lot of uncertainty there in the biofuels market but so let's keep talking about grains. I need to probably pick up the pace for you all. Um, China has been buying a lot of grain from, I mean they've been buying a lot of corn, putting corn on the books but let's look back historically as well too and see that hey, they have through periods bought a lot of commodities from us and from other folks. This is a favorite graph of mine because everything in blue is a U.S. commodity. Um, and you can see the, the color change in this graph over time where first they buy corn, then China's, so at the same time, China's building stocks historically. 
And so they're trying to prop up their price. So importers are buying corn. So they stop this by saying that's GMO with an unapproved trade. Then the same thing for DDG start coming in and they say the same thing about the GMO trade. And then sorghum starts to come in and it has no TRQ. And so it has no tariff protections, nor does it have, nor is it GMO and it starts coming in. Now, the Chinese price for corn recently has been surging. The Chinese are fighting with the Australians with respect to blame for the coronavirus, and they're punishing the Australians by not buying their barley. So they really are looking around for grain, but the question is, is will they, you know, are, are they buying it, getting some on the books just for, for emergency purposes, waiting for their own crop to come in? Or are they going to go ahead and blow through the TRQs? So the TRQs, these are volume maximums which come into China cheaply. If you try to bring in more than that, there is a big tariff unless the government waives this. Okay, so you can see what those tariffs are, what the fill rates have been in the past. They've been very low. But as part of a WTO case, China said, we're going to administer this differently. Basically, they would give a bunch of the quota to state-owned enterprises, and then those quotas would go unfilled so they could keep foreign grain out and keep the prices propped up. Okay, so they seem more willing now to issue the totality of those TRQs, but the question is, is will they go beyond those TRQs, or will they really see those TRQs as something they want to maintain um, and, and then let commercial importers do things like scrounge around for sorghum, but they've already bought a lot of our sorghum. Barley, but they're fighting with the Australians. DDGs, but they have uh, punitive tariffs on those as well too. So it isn't clear, while they have put a bunch on the books, it isn't clear <coughs> um, whether they'll continue to buy beyond the TRQ or limit themselves to those volumes. Let's talk about beans again here quick. Again, what we're, what we're looking at for prices as of June and where the futures market is, perhaps a bit more resilient than, than, than we had. And part of that's this probably overly pessimistic look at what Chinese demand would, would be. And I think that's been the case for a lot of folks over the last decade, underestimating Chinese demand. So let's talk about support, soybean supply and demand here, looking at the balance sheet. I just put that arrow there because I want you to take a look at that as well, too, in terms of some folks calling for yields which are maybe 10% higher than that. Again, I think it's way too early to make such a call, but an expectation in 2021 of a rebound in exports, we'll jump into that. Uh, carryouts which continue to moderate. 425 is 425 million bushel carryout, not tight, um, but not overly huge either given the growth in that market and maybe a good rebound in, in, in trade and, and some continued domestic use. That's not such an outrageous carryout number, especially considering where we've been in previous years. So part of, I think, what is going on here is Chinese demand has really changed in terms of what from year to year and from what folks expected. So this is 1819 to 1920 marketing year changes. So you can see that Chinese import demand up about 500 million bushels year over year. And a lot of that coming where initially folks thought 1920 demand from China would be flat year over year. Continuously 
boosted that estimate, continuously boosted that estimate that China's taking in a lot more soybeans than um, uh, a lot more soybeans than they than folks had expected. And at the same time, at a point where our production was reduced. You can see this also, they've been buying record amounts of beans from China since the first of the year. And that graph on the right shows why that Brazilian crop was a big increase year over year in the size of that crop. And then even the size of that crop has been increasing in its estimate over the last several months. That crop has been getting bigger, which gave them the price advantage. Now that's starting to trail off and that's the Chinese putting some of ours on the books and seasonally that makes sense. We're getting into our season in the marketplace. Um, so when you look at this, you can see there right now that 1920 China import number started out at 85 million, sorry, 87 million metric tons. And it got as low as 85 million metric tons early on. And so again, once again, underestimating Chinese demand and the rebound in that feeding sector. It's going someplace. All right, it's going someplace. And right now they've got it flat year over year. I think that that's a big question mark as that sector continues to expand. Do we get back up to something larger? That'll be an interesting one to watch. So let's talk about where we are at. This is soybean commitments. Uh, sorry, soybean commitments. So this is shipments and outstanding sales. Started out a little bit slow, has been showing some counter seasonal strength as we've seen some late season demand as the China starts to put some on the books. Now, this is when we look out into the next crop year. So this is new crop outstanding sales. And you can see not only are outstanding sales better than the last several years for this point in time, but China specifically taking a bigger chunk of that and putting it on the books. I wanna remind you all that outstanding sales are not the same as shipments, of course, right? Those can be rolled, they can be canceled. And, and uh, so they're sitting out there, it's good news, but you need to see those shipped. Here's what I'm talking about here. Here's inspections to China. So that's beans that have actually shipped and that's outstanding sales to China. I think there's a real question here about you know, we, we've got, how did the Chinese respond to things in our own political situation in our own country? Uh, I, I can tell you stories of a lot of different ways here, but I will say, you know, there's a fair amount of leverage right there, right? You've got a lot of beans on the books, but not yet shipped. Okay. And so I think that this is also, you know, supplies in terms of yields, I think have been the big driver while folks have looked at the Chinese buys and, and, and you see the market seem to shrug them off. Part of that's expectations of better yields and part of it's, hey, I wanna see some of this follow through in terms of sales. Really quick on wheat, uh, I don't have a lot that I wanna say about wheat other than to show you some of the USDA's uh, 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 balance sheets here, there's a lot of wheat in the world generally. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of wheat in the world generally. So in our expectation, at least when you compare July futures, now this is CME. So this is, this is your Chicago wheat price and that's an all wheat FAPRI price per bushel. And those, and so the Chicago wheat price may be more reflective of what you all, of, of we all here in Missouri might be interested in, but not necessarily reflective as well of that 
overall wheat price. I'm going to skip that one. So let's talk a little bit about phase one. Again, I think the bigger driver and the shrugging off of Chinese buys has been domestic supplies on yields. But let's talk a little bit about phase one. Just as this is where we are sitting, and this is basically what the agreement looks like, 2017 base level, which is a good amount of trade. If we got back to that level of trade even, I, I think that that is a good thing, right? If we got back to pre-friction levels, that's a fair amount of trade. And, it, and it'll be a bit of a different mix, a little bit of a different mix than maybe we've seen in pre previous years with additional meat exports. But the, on top of that 2017 base, there's a 2020 bump, and then there's a larger 2021 bump that's expected. Right now, even USDA's exports for fiscal year 2020 was only about 13 billion or 15 billion CIF. And why am I talking CIF? Because the agreement is not the price we sell it for here. It is the price the Chinese pay for it delivered. And in theory, phase one agreement is for calendar year 2020 for commodities actually imported by uh, December 31. So things on the books don't matter, other than politically, things on the books don't matter to, counting towards the agreement unless they ship. So, and you can see that the Chinese, this is my other thing where there's a lot of seasonality here as well too. So the fact that the fiscal year number might be quite low discounts the fact that the last three months of the year are when we do a tremendous amount of bean business with China historically. And in fact, uh, you know, so that's, that, that's in the end of the calendar year, but past the end of the fiscal year. So there's an opportunity here. There is a lot on the books. The dollar value of the stuff on the books is another six or seven million dollars. So that gets you up to levels for beans, more like 2017 levels for beans. If everything on the books and you're saying it's, it's a big chunk of it's actually going to go by the end of the year. Okay. But there's a big hill to climb here. So what I'm doing here is, is I'm looking at everything through July. So the first seven months of the year, here's where we're at and here's where we need to be to meet the actual phase one agreement. We're at about $10 billion of export value to date to the Chinese that's arrived and it's supposed to hit 36 and a half. The things that historically have been seasonal here is soybeans. Everything else that we send to them tends not to be seasonal, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be. It doesn't mean they couldn't, you know, take some additional ethanol. Doesn't mean they couldn't take additional meat. Um, but again, soybeans will have to do some of the heavy lifting. I think achieving the phase one goals as explicitly described in the agreement is going to be a real big task. Doesn't mean it couldn't be a good trade number. It just means hitting that actual target is going to be a big task. So let's talk about, this is an unpublished FAPRI report that we did that looks at some of the COVID impacts. And this is something we shared with both the Office of the Chief Economist and with um, uh, folks on the Hill and kind of looking at the impacts on different sectors. It might look a little bit different here because we might have some different livestock effects, different dairy effects, uh, some different crop receipts, but the general principle here is 
I think probably where we would end up if we did this again, not so far, with some exceptions. And we'll talk about those real quick. Crop receipts down 15 billion, livestock receipts down 31, 32 billion. Now, some of that fall in crop receipts is gonna actually offset some of the losses for livestock receipts, but overall an impact on net farm income of about $30 billion, okay? So individually here, you might see some different impacts when you look at different crops. If we were to update this in terms of maybe dairy uh, and cattle and hogs, but you can see here corn taking the biggest impact from COVID and that's a demand side issue. Uh, soybeans taking an impact follow on from corn and cotton taking some impacts as well too. I saw a question pop up in chat about cotton demand. I think cotton demand is one of those things where if we have a lingering macroeconomic um, slowdown, that's when issues for cotton come on and probably globally as well too. It's not just the U.S. economy. We export the vast majority of our production and they spun overseas and goes to demand overseas. So I think that that is one of the places where you'd want to watch is there's a lot of cotton out there that needs to find a home and an economic slowdown and put some pressure on cotton. Uh, here we've got federal government outlays to farmers. Again, we talked about this. I don't think the general sense is that while you will take the payment, you'd prefer it coming from the market, not from the government, but it has been an offset. One of the things that has been interesting is the claims on CFAP have been less than some folks might have anticipated. So it is interesting in terms of money available, CCC funds available, the timing of those CCC funds and how the government might respond with a 2020 program if they were to do so and what that 2020 program might look like. But I think folks need to realize some of the flows of those CCC funds how carryover works, how timing works, and how that might limit the size of the programs that the government can implement. We can talk about that if folks have a, have a general interest in that. So we're kind of getting here to the end, two measures of farm income. I, I, don't, I don't want to put too much into this because uh, this is our estimate of net farm income, which would show 2020 a little bit lower than 2019, and then a sharp drop off in 2021. What I will tell you is that USDA revisions of several billion dollars on their number for farm income is not unusual, and it's been as many as $20 billion revision. That number can be revised hugely. And so just from your, your mind, in a political sense, and I see Blake come on, so I need to wrap up here. Uh, from a political sense, this could be revised and 2021 farm income could look better according to USDA in that regard. Blake, I can stop here because I, I see you come on, so I must be running over time. No, no, you're doing fine. I just wanted to be ready for when you're finished. Go ahead. Uh, okay, okay. So this is my last slide then. Good. You have, you have great timing. So an obvious statement, unlike uncertainty here is likely to continue at least in the in the short run. You know, U.S. crop looking good. I don't want to get too wrapped up in a bean yield at this point. Uh, I think for some places conditions were quite good, but there are some areas of dryness. Uh, supplies in the rest of the world are good. Length and breadth of COVID-19 impacts, we still don't know. Will we have a second wave of shutdowns? Will we have a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, a checkmark shaped recovery? Uh, will the Chinese attempt to make phase one or do a better job of making phase one? And how additive is trade as a result? And I think that depends on commodity. 
and how will the November election impact agriculture? We can talk about that one. I just put that out there as a, as a point where I think for, it depends on some commodities. Uh, I, I think there's, there's different impacts. That's all I got, Blake. So I'll pass it all back right. to you. Thank you very much. Again, if you're on Zoom, type in a question. If you're on Facebook, type in a question. If you're on phone, uh, hit star nine and we will get to you very quickly. Um, Seth, I got to tell you, I, I have to admit that I did not totally understand um, your slide on ethanol, but I did pick up that it's bad. Uh, yes. We had a kind of a cyclical peak in uh, meat production, um, which has obviously contributed to uh, some of the challenges we've had this year. Uh, and we all know the trade picture. Just over the next one to three to five years, what is there to be optimistic about? <laughs> um, okay, you're, you're, you're uh, you know, I, I, I gave a, a presentation at the Kansas City Fed. You're, you're putting me in a box here because I'm not sure, I'm not a terrible optimist. But here, so I gave a presentation at the Kansas City Fed, and I think the part of the problem that is the color, you're coloring against these last couple of years have been bad relative to what was the biggest. What was the best farm income period of time, say 2010 to 2014 post-war? So I think in that regard, you got to say, hey, what's my base? Okay, so so if you think there's a return to 10 to 14, I think that that's a that, that that's that's probably overly optimistic. Um, I don't really see uh, necessarily optimism for strong growth in things like ethanol. But I think that um, uh, when you look forward, you know, maybe a return to more normalized trade, maybe some even in some improved trade is probably if you're looking for uh, for an opportunity, it's it's there. All right. So your uh, 2021 income and both in your income, the so farm income slide and your slide uh, government payments. I'm assuming you're you're anticipating just the farm program payments. In other words, uh, uh so, so what are the chances of another uh, MFP in 2021? Uh, I realize that, that, that not only has economic implications, but also political. I mean, one administration might approach it different than another, and we don't know who's going to be in charge. Well, do you think it's this, can we continue to expect this level of government payments? I guess what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, so I, and I, th I think that the, the money is there in terms of CCC authority to some extent. Um, I, I, I think you're right. I think politics matter post-November here. Um, I, I can tell you many different stories on, I mean, for, for MFP, one could envision that we get down the road, there might be an opportunity for 2020 CFAP style payments, right? I, I mean, I think there will be opportunities. I'm not sure. So I'm not sure what those opportunities look like after November 3rd, but I think that there are probably some opportunities before that for some 2020 payments. You know, they can announce programs and push the government to fill them, push the Congress to fill them as well too. The administration could do that. They could announce another program to kind of soak up some of those CFAP payments that weren't claimed. They got. 14 billion in CCC borrowing authority for this current year. They could announce a 2020 program and then uh, uh, look to have uh, CCC funds replenished after October, after the new fiscal year. So there's a lot of moving parts here. 
So I think the timing is important. Um, but again, I'll come back to uh, right now, 2021 farm income looks worse. Tell me what USDA is actually going to say about 2020 farm income after their revision. Politically, it could look bad if farm income actually goes up in 2020, right? Then they'll say things like, you all are getting plenty of money, right? And that'll make it a bit of more of a challenge to make payments. All right. Are there any other questions? We don't have anybody in the queue. I'm going to ask one more. Got to ha can't help myself. So, so you kept mentioning the fact in the in the ethanol section that some of these decisions will be made uh, after the election. Uh, do you? But I assume before the transition, if there is one, uh, do you assume that we're going to get those look back SREs that uh, concern us all so much? So, so yeah. So I'm going to be a bit of a pessimist here. Um, I'm not optimistic about the ethanol industry because past behavior has made this industry, this, this program does not like uncertainty. Uncertainty works against this program. And we've had nothing but uncertainty when it comes to EPA decision-making in this. Um, I think that if we don't get a decision for the, before the election, we'll get an, a decision shortly after the election um, on those SREs. And I think that there is, the, 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 the market response has been, it's not so sure those SREs will be granted. I'm probably in the camp that thinks they have a better chance than the market thinks right now of getting those SREs if it's past election. If there's some, I mean, this, I think this becomes very much the realm of politics. If there is a need in the, to help some Senator, maybe those decisions are made a different way pre-election. I will also tell you, and, and, and also, you know, you think about um, CFAP payments or some kind of program payments to ethanol producer to ethanol producers as well, too. I mean, I don't know. I don't think you know, we can have a long discussion there. But So we should be hoping for tightening in the Ernst race. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that would be a fair interpretation uh, of that. If, if somebody needs a little support, maybe that decision. I mean, they're already months overdue for, for making that announcement. And so it would not surprise me that post-election you get both a, a, an SRE decision and you get this report released, which is really kind of a, a philosophical, here's what we think of, of biofuels post-2022. I've seen that report before it got yanked by EPA, and I would not call that a positive ethanol view. And that may be why it got yanked. All right. Well, we thank you for your time. We're up against our stop, and uh, I don't see any more questions. Uh, great presentation, and I think it was helpful to everyone that uh, has seen it and will see it as we uh, put it up on the web. Uh, those of you on Zoom, disconnect. We will rebegin or restart at 9.15 uh, for a session on the court system in Missouri and the nation. So we're looking forward to hearing uh, from Justice Zell Fisher, and uh, thanks, Seth, uh, for his fine presentation his time this morning. Thank you very much.